Thank you for listening to Painted Vessels, Episode 1, an original production based on the novel by Gina Renee Freitag. Produced by Northwest University and Apple Core Soundscapes. I've seen that look on your face before, on other people. You want to know about our time in the woods, but you're afraid to ask. Well, I don't mind talking about it. Not anymore. Eli doesn't mind either. We can both tell you what it was like. Hmm. It was only two months, but I'll never forget those days in the woods. Don't be mistaken, though. Just because we were out there together doesn't mean it was romantic. That came later. Trying to survive out there was... Well, I was going to say it was difficult, but not all of it was. Like the time we found that hunting cabin. Sometimes I wonder what our lives would have been like if those things leading up to our escape into the woods hadn't happened the way they did. But as scary and horrible as everything was, it has always reminded me of my favorite scripture, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 17 and 18. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We never imagined that all that pain was going to lead to so much joy. There were a lot of things we couldn't see back then. <laughs> we didn't even know what day it was. By the time we had reached that little hunting shack, it was, oh, I don't know, a week or two later? It must have still been April. I thought we could have stayed there forever, but when I look back now, I'm glad I didn't get my way. Wake up, Ada. We can't stay here any longer. I kept my eyes closed, resisting Eli's orders. I needed more sleep. After only a few days of hiding in that old cabin, I felt as though the constant chill had finally left my body. The aches and pains caused by long days of trekking through underbrush were starting to feel like a memory. Even my nightmares had slowed, giving me a small hint of peace. I didn't want to get up. I didn't want to leave. And I certainly did not want to think about why it might be necessary. But I couldn't ignore him for long. My eyes fluttered open, revealing the low morning light. It was almost dawn. The sun hovered on the horizon, unwilling to rise above the trees. Just as unwillingly, I sat up and turned toward Eli. He buzzed about the room with a determination that made me uneasy, grabbing items from the shelf and stuffing them into his bag. I pleaded with him. Can't we stay one more day? I know you don't want to go, Ada, but I'm worried. They might be closer than we think. We can't let them find us. How can they? We haven't stopped running since we reached the woods. How do you know they're even following us? Because of this. He pulled the leather satchel out of his canvas bag. The one he had taken from that awful man at the abandoned rock quarry and placed it in my hands. I didn't know it was in the bag. I opened the satchel with trembling fingers, and as I peeked inside, my heart sank. What I saw changed everything. My eyes darted round the cabin, and a wave of fear crashed over me as the safety of our oasis melted like a mirage in the desert. We had stumbled upon that mossy old hunting shack four days earlier, and it seemed like the perfect place to hide. It had been well stocked despite the layer of gray covering everything. The table and counters, the folded clothes and linens, 
and the jars of canned food on the shelf. They had all been coated in a colorless, dusty film. Even the beds hadn't lost their extra blanket of ashy drabness. So what, right? At least the cabin had beds. That's what I was thinking. Sure, before finding that rundown shack, Eli had been making us places to sleep in the woods. But fir boughs stacked upon bumpy tree limbs could never be as comfortable as a real bed, even a dusty one. The fact that he was able to make beds out of fallen branches was the point I should have been focusing on. He was able to get us off the cold ground at night and made better lean to shelters than I could, ones that wouldn't leak or fall on us. He can find fresh water, he's good with directions, and he knows how to trap small animals. Eli had kept us safe that whole time, so I shouldn't have been questioning his decisions. Of course he was right. <laughs> he usually is, and I really did trust him. I've known Eli all my life, which at that point had been almost 15 years. He's a year older than me, and before all those horrible things had happened, before everything was taken from us, his family had lived in the house next to mine for as long as I could remember. Yes, Eli Noble and Ada Young were best friends, and we always had been. We used to walk to school together, we helped each other with our chores, and we often explored the fringes of the backwoods. Even our families, the Nobles and Youngs, ate supper together regularly. I miss those evenings with our families. We did everything together. Oh, except for one thing. I always stayed home whenever Eli went camping with his dad. It was one of the few things I had never done with him. Instead, the father-son duo would disappear into the wilderness for several nights at a time. Deep in those woods behind our homes, Mr. Noble taught Eli all the things that ended up keeping us alive that spring. Often, after coming home from those camping trips with his dad, Eli would take me to the edge of the woods and show me what he had learned. One time, about a year before we were taken, I think it was in May, he had me taste the edible plants he could identify. As I nibbled on a bitter dandelion, he told me that when we were married someday, we could explore the woods for days and never go hungry. And when we found the perfect spot, he would build me a house, just like his dad had done for his mom. But 11 months later, Eli's hopes of learning any more skills from his father came to a shocking end. And from that day on, our lives were never the same. That cold April day, which had dashed Eli's dreams, was also the source of my nightmares. It was a day we both tried not to think about, yet it was constantly on our minds. <laughs> I guess we did get some time in the woods after all, but it wasn't what Eli had imagined when he spoke of our future, nor was living in the woods the idyllic fairy tale I thought it would be. We needed to hide, but always having to worry about who might be tracking us was more than distressing. After several days of constantly moving, trying to stay warm, and often failing to find food, I felt broken. Eventually, having no one but ourselves, and owning nothing but a stolen bag of clothes and a 10-inch bowie knife, we chanced upon a refuge against the cold, harsh wilderness, the little hunting shack. Though faded and crumbling, it offered us a place to rest. In the cabin, we would be warm and dry maybe even safe. We could stop running and start thinking for just one moment about what to do next. But that hope vanished when Eli showed me what was in his bag. 
As I closed the satchel's flap, my stomach flipped. The greasy leather smelled like smoke and sweat. Repulsed, I shoved it to the bottom of the bag. So yeah, I was finally motivated to leave, even if it meant returning to those indistinguishable days and nights of trudging through the woods. We had to keep running. In a daze, I watched Eli stuff old clothes into his bag. Next, he packed a metal bowl and two cups from the cupboard. Shaking off my dread, I opened a drawer and sifted through its contents, looking for anything useful. As Eli wrapped a small knife in linens and placed it with the other items, I found two candles and some flint and steel, which I put into the bag as well. Eli discovered a length of rope in a crate by the door. Setting it aside, he rolled the blankets from both beds into a tight bundle. Using one end of the rope to tie up the bedding, he created shoulder straps with the other end. Do you mind carrying this? No, I don't mind. Maybe we should take this also. I picked up a pot that was sitting on the wood stove. It would be easier to cook in that rather than on a spit made from sticks. Whenever Eli had managed to snare the occasional animal, we cooked it over a fire and date it with our hands, but that usually resulted in burnt, greasy fingers. Oh, we should take some utensils too. Yeah, okay. See if you can tie the pot onto the blankets. Eli found the metal plates and utensils under the counter and tossed them into the bag. He grabbed a cloth and tore it into strips. I had a pretty good idea what those were for, but I looked away, not ready to think about it. I nodded toward the shelf. Should we take the jars of food? Maybe one. Otherwise they might get too heavy, and I don't want them to knock together and break in the bag. Here, give me your arm, Ada. I walked over to him, slow and hesitant. I closed my eyes as he pushed my sleeve up and wrapped my forearm in the cloth strips he had just torn. It was uncomfortable, but I felt safer with my arm covered. After he tied the ends together and tucked them under the edge of the wrapping, I opened my eyes, and Eli looked at me with a half-hearted smile. That should work for now. Could you do mine? I nodded and held my breath as I wrapped his arm just like mine. Eli scanned over the room one final time and grabbed a jar of grayish-yellow vegetables from the shelf. Okay, let's go. With heavy hearts, we abandoned our sanctuary, shouldering our respective loads. I peered over at him. Which way should we go, Eli? Squinting, he pointed to the southeast. And as we began to walk, the sun finally peeked over the treetops. I remember the day I first laid eyes on the gardeners like it was yesterday. June 11th, 1894. It was a Monday. Oh, let me start over. I am Mrs. Evelyn Russell, East Haven's expert in all things domestic. So the prospect of having newlyweds move in next door gave me quite a thrill. Now, I had first learned of this possibility while taking a well-deserved break from my chores. I was sitting in my kitchen nook, sipping spiced tea and making a mental inventory of my pantry stock of canned goods and other various sundries. But the task of reorganizing was forgotten when I noticed David Holden, the town's banker and property holder, escorting a young couple into the old Colebrook house. That house had been empty for years. Situated on a plot of ten acres, it had once been efficiently kept on the inside by Mrs. Colebrook and smartly maintained on the outside by Mr. Colebrook. It was a sensible three-bedroom house with an economic floor plan. 
neither too big nor too small. I had often thought that if the Colebrooks had been a touch more creative and not so thrifty, their home might have been improved upon greatly. It was a sturdy building with abundant potential. In fact, after it had been vacant for only two months, I began to think of it as the perfect house for one of my daughters to settle into. With the right influence, mine of course, it could have been a splendid home indeed. <laughs> Several years later, however, my dream of beautifying the Colebrook house finally died when all four of my daughters had married and moved away. But that Monday, I felt a small rekindling of an expectation once denied me. The couple viewing the house seemed young. They couldn't have been married for more than a few months, and due to their simple appearance, I figured they must be starting out their married life with little to no means. They were not a local couple, and given that East Haven was a remote town, that young bride would not have a maternal figure to turn to when facing her daily trials of early marital establishment. I just knew I would be an indispensable help to these new neighbors. Now, I am well aware that many of the local townsfolk back then had considered me a know-it-all and a busybody with strong, unbendable opinions. I, however, saw myself as an experienced homemaker, with a burden to help the less enlightened housewives of East Haven. I simply had to help all those young wives strive towards their own perfection. Perhaps, at the time, I wasn't able to admit, or even understand, the true source of my meddling. I was, in fact, a lonely widow, deprived of the opportunity to share the early years of my own daughter's marriages. Of course, how could they be anything else but shining examples of wifely excellence, especially considering the training I had given them before they moved away? When it came to my daughters, I believed I was an undeniable success at motherhood. My son, unfortunately, was another story. Adding him into the equation threw off my results, but this was not my fault. Instead of trusting my wisdom, he completely ignored what I had taught him and held to a different opinion of what success looked like. So when he ran off to pursue his own silly ideas instead of making a mark for himself in East Haven, it was easier for me to tuck away all mention of him underneath the many proud stories I had of my daughters. I acknowledged his existence only when necessary. To ease my sadness, the disappointment in my son, and the absence of my daughters, I never allowed the mistakes of a new bride to escape my notice. Young wives continually needed correcting, and I was quick to point out those errors. I loved to demonstrate my extensive knowledge, and it invigorated me to think that this new couple might move into the Colebrook house. I allowed myself to imagine an intimate, parent-like relationship forming between me and the young woman. Helping this fledgling couple would undoubtedly wipe away the ache in my heart. And of course, they would be forever grateful for the guidance I planned to give. 
By the next afternoon, I knew what I needed to do to make this perfect scenario come true. I wrapped my shawl around my shoulders and began scheming as I stepped out my front door. I had nearly completed an entire domestic lesson plan by the time I marched into town that Tuesday. I just had to find Mr. Holden and learn all I could about these newlyweds, starting with whether or not they intended to rent the Colebrook house, and when I could expect them. (laughs) I was so distracted I had completely forgotten to finish working on my pantry the day before. But of course, I was not to blame for that. Since it rarely happens, it is always exciting when someone moves into town. As I walked contentedly down the main street of East Haven that day, I, Evelyn Russell, sifted through my almost forgotten plans to improve the Colebrook House, confident that my summer would be most interesting indeed. Aiden and I still didn't know what day it was, but we had left the hunting shack a while ago, so it might have been May by then. I just remember thinking, as I dipped my hands and knife into the water, and washed away the sticky blood, how grateful I was that we were able to camp close to a creek. Removing the pelt from a rabbit can be messy work when you don't have the right setup, but it's a useful skill. I still had to scrape the skin, but first I cut up the carcass so Ada could make a stew. While she was heating the water, I detached the sinew from the legs, rinsed them, and set them aside to dry. I was going to make it into a cord later, which could be used to sew the pelt. I also scraped one of the leg bones clean and set it with the sinew. That I planned to sharpen into a tool which could push the cord through the hide. Finally, while Ada was cooking, I scraped the fat and connective tissue from the skin, washed the rabbit pelt, and spread it on a log to dry. It felt good to have a project to work on, like I was still in control of something. I could almost forget how much our lives had been torn apart. Even so, I was impatient for that stew. It had been a few days since we had meat, and I was hungry. Also, I wanted to eat before starting the next unsavory step in the tanning process. When Ada glanced up from the bubbling pot, she scrunched her nose at me. You should change, Eli. It's time for supper. I glanced down and saw that I was splattered with more blood than I had realized. Oh, sorry. I unbuttoned my shirt and set it aside. The weather wasn't really warm enough for only an undershirt, but I didn't want to change yet. I planned on wearing the stained one again while tanning the rabbit skin. After eating, I helped Ada wash the dishes and put our camp in order. I added wood to the fire, knowing I would need the embers. As the fire quickened, I admired our little encampment. That one stands out in my memory because it was such a comfortable place to stay. We had already been there for a day and a half, and I was hoping we could remain for at least two more. All the walking had tired Ada out. She was still exhausted, even after a couple days of rest. Ada, you should sleep. She nodded at my suggestion, walked over to the lean-to, and slipped under a blanket. Sometimes, it felt like we were playing house, but then reality would set in. Those days were not a game, and our lives depended on me remembering that. Ada wasn't just tired, she was slowly starving. The outline of her collarbone was more defined than it used to be, and I was convinced that a strong wind could blow her away. She looked a little bit better after eating the stew, but that was the first true meal we had had in a while. Meat was hard to get, so usually we just ate whatever plants we could find. I think my dad would have taught me how to trap larger animals eventually, but whenever we went hunting for deer, we had always brought a rifle. 
All Ada and I had was the bowie knife and the small paring knife from the cabin. At one point, I thought about making a spear out of the larger blade, but I was already working on the rabbit pelt so the spear could wait. I put on my shirt and carried the paring knife, a spoon, and the pot over to the rabbit. It was only the fourth one I had snared since we had been hiding in the woods. Mostly, I caught squirrels, muskrats, and even mice. Not the best for eating, but when the choices between that are ferns and dandelions, meat always wins out. Using the knife and spoon, I removed the rabbit's brains and put it into the pot. I added some water, and as I placed the pot among the coals, I thought about my dad again. He often spoke of man's ties to the earth, and because of his deep faith, he seasoned all his lessons with his love of God. I can still hear him now. Creation is amazing, Eli. God gave us everything we need to survive right here on his glorious earth. You just need to look around and see how well he provides. Being in the woods produced a bittersweet ache in my heart. I missed my dad, but the outdoors provided a continued connection to him. It seemed as though he was standing beside me, repeating the wisdom he had shared throughout the years. This plant is safe to eat, but stay away from those mushrooms. Mark your snare site so you can find it later. Only take from the earth what you need, Eli. Never waste any part of an animal. Wasteful people discard the organs. But our ancestors understood the heart and liver can nourish our bodies better than any flesh alone. Even the bones can be useful. There seemed no limit to the helpful survival tips that my dad, William Josiah Noble, whispered out from my memories. I removed the pot from the coals and mashed the hot water and brain into an oily tanning mixture. As the liquid cooled, I found a rough rock and buffed the pelt. Once the skin was soft and supple, I slowly rubbed half of the mixture into it. Another coating would need to be applied in the morning, after it had dried. Since we still had the jar from the cabin, I poured the rest of the liquid into it screwing the lid on tight and set it aside. Hoping to keep curious animals away from our camp, I carried the rabbit pelt downstream and hung it over the water between two trees. Back at camp, I changed into clean clothes and gathered our dirty ones. I washed them in the creek and laid them out to dry. As I glanced at the wet clothes, it struck me that they were all men's clothing, even the ones Ada had to wear. I wondered if it bothered her or if she even cared. Either way, I was grateful that we had extra layers for warmth. The clothes I had taken from the cabin were for a smaller man and worked well enough for Ada, even though they hung on her and made her look more petite. But the clothes I had found in the canvas bag were for someone larger. The man from the quarry... I didn't know if he was still alive. All I could think about was how lifeless he looked as he lay unconscious on the ground. Right before I had crept up and hit him over the head with a metal bar, I watched him stuff food and clothes into the bag. That's why I took it. The man paused long enough to harass Ada, and that was my chance to overtake him. I swung the bar as hard as I could, and the man dropped instantly. As I stared at his body sprawled on the ground, I forgot the urgency of our escape, but hearing Ada shout woke me out of my stupor. Hurry, Eli, get me out of here! There was an almost desperate hope mingled with the fear in her eyes. As she peered around the cavern, tears streaming down her cheeks, I grabbed the man's bag, and while searching his pockets, I discovered the bowie knife that proved essential to our survival. I found the keys and tossed them to Ada. While she reached through the bars to unlock the cage she was in, I took the man's shoes as well. Ada's feet were bare, and she wouldn't get far like that. But she could manage my boots if I wore the man's larger ones. I knew I was stealing, 
and it made me feel guilty, but I also knew these things would be invaluable in the difficult days ahead. As I sat in our camp by the creek, remembering our escape, I shook my head as if ridding myself of pests. I didn't like thinking about the rock quarry. Those days were not pleasant. I wanted the memories to leave me alone, so I forced my mind back to the rabbit pelt. In the morning, I was going to finish tanning it and make fur-lined socks for Ada. My boots were already old when I gave them to her, but after days of hiking, they had gotten holes in them. The fur socks would protect her feet and would be thick enough to fill the oversized boots. They would keep her feet from rubbing and prevent further blistering. By that point, the night had grown cold and dark. I glanced toward the lean-to. If Ada had nightmares again, I wanted to get a few hours of rest before she started screaming. I put out the fire, walked over to our shelter, and wrapped myself in one of the blankets. Pressing my back against Ada's, I savored the heat coming from her body. She was warm, and her rhythmic breathing was comforting. I really hoped she would sleep through the night. Closing my eyes, I soon drifted into a fitful sleep. I remember that camp too. That was where we celebrated my birthday. You see, it wasn't all bad. No, some of it was good. We spent two more days at that place by the creek, and the whole time we were there, I had been trying to snare something we could cook for supper. That last day, when I came back to the camp, I watched Ada's back as she poked the fire with a stick. I knew she must be hungry, but I didn't have any meat. Nevertheless, I was determined to not disappoint her. I had a plan. A surprise, really. As quiet as I tried to be, my footsteps gave me away. She heard me walking up behind her and spun around. There you are. With a proud grin, I placed the metal bowl from the cabin in her lap. It was full of small, pale, pink raspberries. The smile spreading over her face was the best thing I had seen in days. Eli, where did you find these? I love raspberries. She looked at them with a renewed energy. You know, they're a little bit underripe. Yeah, it's probably the end of May. Maybe. Concern filled her eyes, but before she could say anything, I continued. I found a beehive inside a tree. I put some honey on the berries to make them sweeter. We missed your birthday, Ada. I wanted to celebrate it today. These berries can be your birthday cake. I remembered her birthday the night I had hung the rabbit pelt over the creek. Seeing berry bushes while returning to camp reminded me of the year Ada's mother had made a small raspberry tart for her. Ruth Young was an excellent baker, and the aroma filling their home that day made my mouth water. Ada loved the tart and, to my delight, she shared it with me. Because the Youngs grew them in their hothouse, raspberries were not an uncommon treat, even in early May. Out in the woods, I wasn't able to make a tart, but we had the berries, and I had a gift for her. My excitement for this plan, though, faded almost as quickly as her smile. Do you really think it's been that long? It was barely April when... As her voice cut out, she tried to wipe her tears without me noticing, but failed. I don't know, Ada. It might be May. It doesn't really matter, though, right? I was hoping to sound indifferent. I didn't want to think about what had happened. I just wanted to bring back her smile and forget everything else. I brought her gift out from behind my back. Here. This is for you. Earlier, I had wrapped it in a shirt and tied it with a length of vine pulled from a tree. The gift itself wasn't a surprise. She knew I was making fur-lined socks for her. Over the past several weeks, she had watched me tan the four rabbit pelts. Then I traced her feet and figured out how to shape all the pieces. I couldn't do any of that without her knowing about them. 
It was the presentation of the gift, however, that became the surprise and brought back Ada's smile. She unwrapped her present and hugged and petted the socks, cooing over them. She put them on her feet and tested them in the boots. They're perfect, Eli. Thank you. She gave me a hug and asked if we could please eat the berries. She wanted to hear how I got the honey from the tree without getting stung. As I told her, I showed the sting on my hand that I did get. Ada rubbed my hand and praised my heroic efforts. We carried on in that desperately needed pretend play for the rest of her birthday party. I think it reminded us both of the normal life we yearned for. We kept the fire stoked, and as the night sky darkened, we nibbled on the sweet tart berries and woody, new-growth fern curls. We laughed and pointed out constellations we knew as well as ones we made up, telling each other stories about the starry pictures in the sky. Eventually, the fire dwindled and our conversation slowed. <sighs> this day was fun, but I think tomorrow we should pack up and move on. Okay. Thank you for remembering my birthday, Eli. Ada stood up, gathered a few items together, and set them by the lean-to. As I spread the embers of the fire and stamped out their glow, I watched her shake out the blankets. That was a good day, even though we didn't have much to eat. But I couldn't help worrying about the next. We needed food. We needed to be safe. We needed to find someone we could trust. I wasn't sure how long I would be able to do everything on my own. Failing to keep Ada safe was not an option, and I realized I was going to need help. Until then, we would keep going forward because I couldn't think of anything else to do. But there was one thing I did know, one thing I felt certain about. Time mattered. We couldn't, or shouldn't, stop moving for too long. Something was pushing me, filling me with an urgency that kept us moving. Forward, forward, forward. We had to keep going forward. Ah yes, I remember the summer of 1894. That was an exciting time for East Haven. A lot of unexpected changes came our way that year, but they were good. I'm Marcus Duncan, pastor here in our humble little corner of the world, and I like a predictable routine. So, every weekday after lunch, I wander throughout the town and plan my sermon. On these strolls, I observe all the scenes around East Haven's Main Street. I watch my parishioners going about their daily activities and listen for the Holy Spirit's guidance on my upcoming message. I usually don't put pen to paper until Friday, but by then, my sermon has written itself. I simply need to transcribe the thoughts in my head. It's an effective routine. Most of the townsfolk know this is my habit, so between the hours of 1 o'clock and 2.30, they limit their discourse with me to passing pleasantries. That Tuesday, June 12th, would have been like any other if it weren't for David Holden. David leaned against the wall of his bank and beckoned to me, claiming he had information I would want to know. Afternoon, Marcus. So, the Colebrook house sold yesterday to a couple from out of town. Really? Well, that's great news, right? We haven't had a new family move into town for a while. Who are they? Their name is Gardner. They're in their early 20s, so just starting out. No children yet. <laughs> You do remember those days, don't you? Long time ago. 
It must be an exciting adventure to begin married life in a new town. Absolutely. But I wouldn't want to make a change like that. At least, not now. Not at my age. It was easier to take risks back then, wasn't it? Can you remember that long ago, friend? I winked at David as he rubbed his thinning hair. So, what brings the gardeners to East Haven? Do they have friends or family here? No. East Haven was the third town they visited. Apparently, they couldn't find what they were looking for elsewhere. I could tell David was proud of that. He grabbed the lapels of his jacket and a grin lit up his face. They fell in love with the Colebrook house and agreed to buy it on the spot. I think they're from Bradford, or maybe the outskirts. Bradford. You have a friend from that town, don't you? Yes, Harold Ross. He owns Bradford's bank, as a matter of fact. He's an honest man and quite organized. <laughs> if I know Harold, he'll have a very detailed record regarding Mr. Gardner's account. That will make my paperwork easier, so I'm grateful for it. The gardeners will return a week from Thursday to pick up their house key. I believe you'll like them, Marcus. They're an agreeable couple, and humble. But you might find them a bit different. Different? What do you mean? Oh, <laughs> just something about their style and demeanor. I got the impression they may have lived a more eccentric life than one usually finds in a small town. Hmm... I moved my head in a slow nod as I glanced at the ground. David was correct. The town could benefit from some variety. But as pastor, I would be the one dealing with the gossip. Not to mention all the honest Christian concern if the gardeners strayed too far from convention. I returned my attention to David. You said they'll move in next Thursday? Yes, and I thought it might be nice to have some townsfolk clean the house before they arrived. It's been vacant for several years and could use some attention. Do you think your wife would be willing to head up that project? Grace? Definitely. I'll talk to her about it this evening. She could ask Hannah Weber to help. I'm sure Hannah would see the opportunity as an excellent way to welcome her new neighbors. Perfect. Thank you, Marcus. I'll unlock the house next Wednesday. That should be enough time to give it a good wipe down. Speaking of neighbors, here comes Mrs. Russell. David indicated the widow's approach with an almost indiscernible nod, but there was no mistake in his knowing grin. I turned and saw Evelyn walking briskly toward us, her jaw set with determination. How was it possible that that woman already knew the town's business before anyone else? Mr. Holden, Mr. Holden, I'm so glad I caught you. Oh, hello, Pastor Duncan. Now, Mr. Holden, please tell me about the couple who was with you yesterday. I'm so anxious to know everything. Mr. Holden, you must tell me. Will they be moving into the Colebrook house? Mrs. Russell, you are going to have to start referring to the old Colebrook house as the new gardener house. The thrill in Evelyn's eyes was obvious, and she shook her fists in triumph. Thank the Lord. That house has been empty for far too long. David, why don't I talk to Grace about having a warm supper waiting for them next Thursday? I'm sure they'll be tired from their travels, and would appreciate not having to cook their own meal. They're moving in next Thursday? So soon? Supper is an excellent idea, Pastor. I will make dessert for them. The gardeners, you say? What sort of a name is that? I imagine they must work the land. <laughs> well, one can only hope. 
Seeing some colorful flowers in their yard would improve my view, I should think. So then, a simple cake. That is a most sensible, everyday dessert. Not too fancy, nor too sweet. It would be just the thing for these gardeners. David didn't have a chance to answer. Evelyn Russell had settled it all. I should have just asked her to begin with. She readjusted the shawl around her shoulders and continued. Now, Mr. Holden, what can you tell me about them? They seem young and pleasant, Mrs. Russell. I'm sure the gardeners will be good neighbors. Young? Well, I could see that from my kitchen. But where did they come from? What type of families do they have? What are their manners like? Are they well brought up and educated? Teachable? Surely even Pastor Duncan would appreciate knowing that. Come now, are they Christians? Oh, please tell me they aren't heathens from the West. What a shame that would be. How troublesome it is to avoid questionable neighbors. Now, Mrs. Russell, I didn't have a chance to get any of that information. The business at hand yesterday was mostly about the house. David flashed a sideways glance at me, so I came to his rescue. You know, those of different faiths still need to see Christ's love and charity in their neighbors. Yes, yes, Pastor, of course. All heathens need to hear about Christ, and we must pray diligently for their souls. But sometimes, no matter how hard we pray, a bad apple is just that. You know what they say about a bad apple and a barrel of good apples. Well, it is just as true with a bad soul. Spiritual rot can spread like a disease. The pious old widow lifted her chin a touch higher. We Christians can't be too careful. Now really, Mr. Holden, are you going to make me find out about these people all by myself? Evelyn stared at David, waiting to hear more. He probably knew what the inquisitive woman wanted to hear. Nevertheless, he only nodded at her. Come now, are they as poor and green as they look? You must know something that will give me an idea about the kind of neighbors I'm getting. Mrs. Russell, I can't tell you anything about their finances, but their age would imply they are newlyweds, and I believe they've been living in Bradford. Anything more? We will have to find out in good time. Ugh, apparently. Well, I'd better go to the Johnson's Mercantile and get sugar for the cake. Good day, Mr. Holden. Pastor Duncan, please tell your wife I will bake a cake to go with the supper she prepares for the gardeners. Just a simple, unfrosted cake. I would hate to make that poor young wife feel intimidated. And we wouldn't want to give the impression that the people of East Haven are too extravagant. With another nod, she marched toward the general store, calling out to Agnes Miller, who was passing by. Evelyn asked if she had heard the news. The Colebrook house had finally been rented. She beseeched Agnes to please pray that the young couple were not heathens. I glanced at David. Rented? I thought they bought the house. They did. As I watched Evelyn cross the street towards Mrs. Miller and the mercantile, I knew the gossip was just getting started. With Evelyn on the job, all of East Haven would soon know everything she herself might imagine about the town's new inhabitants. I shook my head and turned back to David. <sighs> Perhaps it would be an ideal week to give a sermon on loving our neighbors. <laughs> yes, that would be ideal. Thank you again for talking with Grace. I better let you get back to your sermon planning. He shook my hand and walked into the bank, continuing to chuckle under his breath. 
I pulled my pocket watch out and looked at the blued hands. A quarter to three already. Heading toward my office, I decided to skip my afternoon walks for the rest of the week. Unfortunately, that would require me to write my sermon while hiding behind my desk, which rarely fosters creativity, but neither does an overly talkative town. At least I had a topic. I took in a deep breath and enjoyed the sweet smell of spring rain turning into fresh summer flowers. As I walked to the church, the Holy Spirit guided my mind back to my sermon. Thank you for listening. In this episode of Painted Vessels, Ada is voiced by Belicia Navarro. Eli is voiced by Welcome Coffin. Evelyn Russell is voiced by Naomi Schultz. William Noble is voiced by Joshua Westberg. Marcus Duncan is voiced by Peter Bell. David Holden is voiced by Golden Hills. Written by Gina Renee Freitag. Directed by Crystal Helmke. Sound designed by Kate Orr and assisted by Drew Freiling. Production assistance by Lauren Blair, Hilary Nelson, and Tanner Bailey. Dialogue editing by Lily Lindbergh. Sound effects editing by Josh Vasquez. Background editing by Jackson Welter. Mixed and mastered by AppleCore Soundscapes. A special thank you to Creatio Center for technology, media, and design.